My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics. Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit, and we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net-zero societies entail. What solutions exist to help address climate change, and what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions? What are the key themes for COP26 and what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations? To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. everyone. Welcome back to The Climate Briefing. I'm Anna Oberry, Research Analyst at Chatham House here in London. I hope you're all well. Busy, busy times, of course, with COP26 and the G20 Leaders Summit just around the corner. Personally, I'm consuming bathtubs of coffee these days, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. I'm enjoying it. So usually in this podcast, we focus on international climate politics. But in this episode, we're taking a bit of a broader view looking at another parallel process, which is also incredibly important, including when it comes to tackling climate change, the UN biodiversity talks. Because we don't just have COPs in the climate change sphere. There are also biodiversity COPs and COPs focused on addressing decertification. And this year, the biodiversity COP, which is formally known as the Conference of the Parties to the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, or the CBD COP, is especially important as governments are seeking to agree a new international biodiversity framework. This year's Biodiversity COP, CBD COP15, is hosted by China, and it was originally scheduled to take place last year, but it has been postponed several times due to the pandemic. It has now been split into two parts. The first part was held just a few days ago in mid-October, and the second part will be held in April next year. So we thought this was an excellent opportunity to lay out what the main aims of the CBD COP15 are and to take stock of where we stand. So to do this, I was joined by Sam Jeel, who is CEO of China Dialogue, uh, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and also an associate faculty at the University of Sussex. In addition to discussing the biodiversity talks, we spoke quite a lot about China's role specifically in international climate and environmental politics because this is an area where Sam really does have incredible expertise. So I hope you enjoy listening. To set the scene for the interview, I started asking Sam to describe the linkages between climate change and biodiversity loss. Simply, if we want to address one of the major drivers of the global biodiversity crisis, we have to get serious about climate change because it's it's one of the major contributors to species loss in the world. And if we want biodiversity conservation to play any kind of serious role in climate mitigation, which you know it is in every low carbon pathway that's been drawn up a major aspect, 
then we need to get much more serious about biodiversity conservation. So it's a perfect example of either vicious cycles or virtuous cycles, right? You can either see the biodiversity crisis driving further climate disaster, or you can actually see some really positive synergies that can be unlocked. The most obvious one being what's often termed, although not uncontroversially, nature-based solutions, which is the idea of finding win-wins or, or options that are so-called no-regret options that will work for both the biodiversity crisis, for the preservation of nature, and for, for the climate. So this can include things like protecting coastal areas or uh, reforestation or low-impact agriculture or regenerative agriculture. There's a number of different kind of terms, and some of these are quite disputed. But essentially, you know, if you do it right you can can sort of coordinate on these sorts of plans and you know leverage arguably the climate convention which has had a lot more attention has a lot more finance and firepower and political muscle and so on behind it to try to move some of the levers associated with the biodiversity crisis which so far doesn't have the same kind of implementation tools to hand thanks that's really clear as you mentioned, I think a lot of listeners will be quite familiar now with COP26 and the UNFCCC process, but I, I could be wrong, but I would think that most will not be as familiar with the global biodiversity talks, and they perhaps will not be entirely clear on what the CBD COP15 aims to achieve. So would you mind saying a few words about that? Convention on Biological Diversity stems from Rio in 1992. You know, it's one of the sort of three major conventions that came out of that moment, being climate, biodiversity, and, and combating desertification. And it, as I mentioned, hasn't got the same scrutiny as the climate convention in recent years, but of course it you know, covers arguably far more and an enormous plethora of issues related to species loss and, and, and protection of, of nature. The CBD COP15 is, of course, the, the 15th conference of the parties, and it's being held in Kunming. It's the first time that China has hosted a convention of this kind, and it's a pretty major moment for China. You know, China has, of course, you know, moved to a much more proactive position in the climate treaty and has gone from being seen as, you know, maybe the laggard or even the sort of villain of the climate talks, you know, 10, 15 years ago to, to being quite a leading sort of position. And going alongside this really is this moment when China's for the first time being able to host a talks and actually being able to put its own leadership brand on the talks. These are titled, you know, Ecological Civilization, Building a Shared Future for Humanity, which is actually a sort of Xi Jinping signature brand leadership slogan. So, it's a kind of a big moment for China from a soft power perspective. It's being held in Kunming, which is a, a place that's known for its you know, rich biological diversity and its history also of activism and academic study and more in terms of the preservation of nature. There's actually a lot of, sort of pilots and academic institutions and so on associated with Yunnan, um, which is you know, a particularly biologically diverse region. So it's an interesting place for it to be hosted as well from that perspective. From a sort of CBD standpoint, it is the beginning of a new 10-year global biodiversity framework. The last framework was known as the Aichi framework, came out of the Aichi talks 10 years previously. And these were pretty much regarded as a failure. I mean, the, the framework is sort of known most of all for a series of targets that weren't met. 
So it comes with it a fairly large order of sort of needing to uh, step up ambition, but also to achieve something that is achievable and has more in the way of implementation, sort of mechanisms built in. And when you're talking about implementation, you also need to talk about finance and, and sort of drivers and so on. So, so there needs to be a little bit more substance, arguably, in, in today's talks, particularly given that their sister, as it were, in the climate talks does seem to have a lot more, you know, sort of levers in terms of, of ability to actually um, implement policy. Great. I was wondering a bit about the concrete outcomes from this first session, because the meeting has been split into two, and the first session I was held just, well, a few days ago. What were the outcomes of, of that, and kind of what needs to come next to enable a successful conclusion of these talks in Kunming next year? Short answer is not very much. There's not a lot of concrete you know, work that's been done. There is arguably momentum there has been a starting of actual you know negotiations as well as or a starting of, of some virtual discussions the biggest thing really that came out of it were leader speeches and particularly you know Xi Jinping gave an opening speech in which he did make some concrete offers that China was was making specifically um, a new global biodiversity fund for the developing world in which he's putting in 1.5 billion Yuan and some other countries sort of stepped up with some small offers to that as well. He also announced a new national park system or some contribution to, to a new national park system in China, which signals to one of the major areas which it remains unresolved, which is the sort of spatial planning aspect of the talks, which is to say there's a lot of emphasis on protected areas and whether there should be and whether there can be a global target on area of the earth, both you know, terrestrial and marine, that will be covered. But there was a coming declaration which sort of sets out some broad ambitions and broad sort of propositions, but it's not highly specific yet and will need to be negotiated. There will need to be a package ready for the in-person talks in April. The discussions towards that started in Kunming, but only, I think, in quite a low-key way. There will be more talks now in Geneva, I believe, in January, which hopefully will help to pick up that momentum a bit further and sort of push it forward to the point where there is a package that can actually be negotiated in April, May in Kunming when there will be in-person talks, hopefully. So, the, the you know, the... Clearly, delays meant that, you know, it's been a really difficult one to pull together, but hopefully it sort of at least now signals that there's a little bit more work behind some of those major areas that will need to be discussed. So the area-based conservation targets, the implementation measures, the finance, and, and some of the other kinds of areas, including those, you know, potential linkages with climate. So what would you say the main differences between this new biodiversity framework that is being negotiated compared to the Ichi target that came before it? So there's there's a greater emphasis in this one on, for example, some achievable area-based targets. So China has an emphasis in its own national planning on what they call ecological red lines which is the idea of trying to sort of set aside a certain amount of land for nature, not for either you know, agricultural production or, or industrial use or, or, or any other kinds of development. 
And this arguably fits with a proposal that's put forward by by Europe and some of the other so-called sort of high ambition countries around 30 by 30, as they call it, which is to say 30% of the planet's area protected by uh, 2030. This is a, you know, a, a difficult target to even get into the text, I think, and then it's a difficult target to really break down in terms of what it means. Will it cover only 30% of land? Uh, will it be able to cover 30% of land and 30% of seas? If it includes the global ocean, how can you really negotiate that? There's difficulty then with how that maps onto or overlaps with other ocean-based conventions, particularly UNCLOS, which might make it very difficult, for example, for China to sign up to. And then you've got the question of really what does it mean to talk about these areas as protected? What types of quality of protection are you really talking about? And what is what's the role of people in that? protection. And then you get the overlap with a lot of the other really major sort of sticking points of all kind of biodiversity negotiations, rightly, which is the role of indigenous people, the role of local communities in the preservation of land. There's a lot of criticisms of previous targets and and frameworks such as Aichi of not taking into account properly the sort of rights of of indigenous people. So there's, there's a lot of work towards trying to build that in. And of course, there's this work around the sort of linkages between climate change and biodiversity, which again are new and newly controversial because of of the ways that these could be seen as either land grabbing for financialized sort of carbon assets, you know, at, at worst, or at least as not having you know adequate safeguards or attention to customary tenure and all these sorts of other tricky issues. And you've got the sort of intersection of that with the issues that are covered by the Nagoya Protocol, which is also part of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which concerns genetic resources and what's called access and benefit sharing, which is essentially, you know, to what extent do countries get to benefit from the use of genetic sequences that are found within their land if they are ever commercialized for, for example, pharmaceutical uses. And that's, you know, an endlessly complex issue, which again, you know, uh, has all kinds of difficult fault lines. It's not an easy treaty to negotiate at all. And I think really hasn't benefited from the fact that it has been very kind of postponed and delayed over the over the last couple of years. And also, frankly, from in a way, the attention has been put on it in the context where China is hosting it. There's a kind of double-edged sword that comes with hosting a convention. On the one hand, one can burnish one's own reputation as a leader on climate change and biodiversity protection and so-called ecological civilization. On the other hand, having scrutiny on oneself as the world's media and as global civil society sort of descends can also really work against ambition and work against innovation if what you're concerned about is actual you know, potential political contention. And you know, the other thing that I think negotiators have learned is you don't want associated with your convention a set of targets that were famously not met. So having something achievable also becomes important. And while there's truth to that, you also don't want that to, to work against anything ambitious, which then gets to, I guess, questions of implementation and finance. You know, if you want to do something ambitious and for it actually to be achieved, you need good, actually solid rules on implementation that make it more or less binding. And then you also need, need decent financing to support that. And so far, again, I don't think there's been adequate progress on those fronts. 
So we'll have to see if you know negotiators and the Secretariat itself and China can really pull out all of that work before coming in April. It's a lot of work to, to pull together a treaty like this. If you think of the equivalent of something like Paris Convention on, on Climate Change, the French government was working very concertedly on this for years before the treaty. So this is a this this enormous amount of work to really pull together all the aspects of this. Interesting, you touched upon it. I was actually just about to ask because you said at the start that the Aichi targets had not been met, and I guess my question was, what is being done, if anything, to you know enhance the prospect that these new targets will actually be met? And you mentioned finance there as a possible factor, and also more stringent enforcement mechanisms, but it seems like that's not really fleshed out, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And, you know, maybe the focus thus far on the area-based targets is actually a distraction from the more concrete kind of work that could be done around implementation. I'd like to take a bit of a a broader view now. We obviously have COP26 just around the corner. Do the dynamics in the different COPs impact each other? We had the first session of the CBD. How do you think, if at all, that the dynamics there will impact COP26 and how might an ambitious outcome in Glasgow, for example, impact the upcoming talks this spring in Kunming? I think it's really what you make of it. And countries will sort of have to make their own weather. If, if they want to produce those sorts of positive synergies and kind of virtuous cycles and so on, they have to put in quite a lot of work to point out where those will be because they're not otherwise going to be obvious. The media narrative, for example, isn't necessarily going to notice that because the CBD talks are much lower profile and have been thus far anyway than the climate talks. I do think there are potential kind of synergies that can be harnessed. I think, for example, you know, China could, in its climate offer, make some sort of linkages between its its offering at the UNFCCC in its you know so-called NDC, its pledge to the climate talks, and its intended sort of pledges to the Biodiversity Convention. There's an equivalent pledge to the Biodiversity Convention. And they could think about how they can make linkages that are sort of coherent and maybe, for example, include spatial planning within their NDC. There are ways that you could make that work that I think would be very positive. There is a nature-based solutions track under the UNFCCC that you know I think could become part of the discussions at Glasgow. I think it would be one of the more productive areas for discussion at Glasgow, probably. And there again, you could try and sort of make those links work. I know that it was on the agenda for the UK government in its efforts to cooperate with China ahead of COP26 to try and you know make something positive of the potential alignments there that you could find. So I, I think there are alignments one can find at this point. I think it's also significant in the light of the fact that Xi Jinping most likely isn't attending COP26 in Glasgow, that the recent speech he gave at the opening of Kunming, which also, by the way, was a video address, so his lack of travel to Glasgow isn't a snub, as far as I can tell. It seems very clearly that he's not traveling from Beijing for whatever reason at all at the moment. And he didn't travel to, to Kunming. He gave a video address. In that video address, though, he you know made broader points about China's commitment on climate to stay in the course on Paris, to you know making a, a broader sort of contribution to the world in terms of China's commitment to ecological civilization. You know, take from that what you will, but I think it does signal that even in a time of greater geopolitical tension, even at a moment post-COVID, when there is you know quite a lot of uncertainty, 
China's pretty committed to trying to make a good offer to both conventions and trying to kind of burnish its reputation as a responsible stakeholder in the area of environment, at least, and sort of trying to hold out its itself as a sort of cooperative actor at the UN on environmental matters. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about China, because you're a true China expert, of course, and uh, China is such a key player both in the global biodiversity talks and in the climate talks. To start with, you mentioned this concept of ecological civilization. What does that actually mean? It's a high-level buzzword that has been circulating in China since at least 2007, and it has meant a number of different things to a number of different leaders. But what's significant now is it's become a major political buzzword for you know China's paramount leader for for President Xi Jinping. In its current sort of incarnation, I think it really means China's offer on the world stage in regard to environmental governance. On the world stage part is sort of significant because, you know, a big part of Xi Jinping's foreign policy and diplomacy has been a shift away from the hide your strength and bide your time kind of maxim under, under Deng Xiaoping, much more towards a proactive, uh, not to mention sort of aggressive foreign policy. And what comes along with that is a concept in Chinese called huayuquan or discourse power. The idea is essentially that China needs to have a right to speak on the world stage and that it should be putting forward its own sort of terms, its own concepts into the UN lingo, into kind of international discourse. And ecological civilization is one of those. It's a, it's a term which essentially China uses just to mean sustainability, to mean global environmental governance and so on. But they're keen to promote it because it's a Chinese concept. It's, it's seen as being a, a Chinese indigenous concept that they are promoting. In practice, there are policies that have been promulgated by Xi Jinping, you know, he has his own sort of approach to environmental governance that have become associated with ecological civilization. Those include that you know, focus I mentioned earlier on sort of spatial planning, this idea of ecological red lines, but it also includes a lot of governance reforms that were quite sorely needed. So particularly during China's reform era, there was and, you know, continues to be a lot of Chinese environmental laws. There was a whole raft of Chinese environmental laws introduced since the 1980s, you know, covering everything from air to water to soil pollution, but they were very poorly enforced, largely because of quite a deep sort of structural misalignment in China, where it was a big gap between central edicts and local governance. Local governments effectively were captured by powerful local interests that were only really concerned with boosting GDP numbers, and that's how they were evaluated. Ecological civilization has become associated with a number of reforms to that system. Some of them are sort of structural in terms of putting uh, local environmental protection bureaus much more clearly under sort of top-down control of the environmental ministry. Some are about changing the kind of key performance indicators for officials, so meaning that a local official will be promoted by a different set of metrics that include more than just GDP growth. So, for example, it might be GDP growth, but minus natural resource depletion and minus environmental violations and so on. So there might be some slightly more balanced kind of metric that they would be evaluated by, although it's a fairly opaque system. And there's also been quite a big top-down push in terms of 
calling out uh, ministries that are seen to have failed in terms of setting proper targets and uh, local bureaus and so on that have you know fudged targets or corruptly allowed projects to go ahead without the proper approvals and so on. So the sorts of things that were quite routine before in terms of uh, essentially getting away with breaking central rules on environmental governance seem to now be being cracked down on in quite a top-down way, often with the use of party disciplinary mechanisms and so on. So in all, it kind of encompasses, I guess, a new approach to environmental governance, one that's quite top-down and authoritarian, one that also is associated with a number of structural reforms and also is associated with this sort of broader offer on the world stage of China being more proactive in its governance, seeking to influence the UN, seeking to influence developing countries uh, in a way that helps China's global influence, including its clean energy industries and so on, that I think are quite associated with that global influence. I think China sees itself increasingly as benefiting from a carbon-constrained world. It sees itself as benefiting from you know, a world that is moving towards a sort of a, a greener, uh, you know, is going to need greener technologies and so on and wants to dominate those technologies of the future. And so there's a strong alignment, I think, with the kind of political economic forces and also what China sees as its, hopefully, its sort of contribution in terms of soft power, in terms of its own place uh, in the international community. I wanted to discuss China's climate targets in a bit more detail. But before that, I just wanted to ask you if you are expecting to see any more announcements on biodiversity coming out of China ahead of the talks in April in Kunming? Yes, I, I would expect so. I think there needs to be some greater kind of ramping up of the of the momentum. And I would hope that there, there will be more coming from China in terms of really clarifying their sort of intentions at Kunming and how that they're going to sort of back this up in terms of big national offers. It tends to be that's the way policymaking happens in China uh, nowadays anyway is that you will have a big leader speech like Xi's speeches to the UN General Assembly, which are mostly focused on climate thus far, and now Xi's speech to Kunming, which will set out some broad commitments. And then you'll see that kind of fleshed out in further policymaking, in uh, in further sort of statements and so on from ministries, from policymakers, from government-linked academics and so on. So I'd expect that we would have a lot more clarity than the kind of fairly terse speeches and so on that we've seen so far. So we're just a few days ahead of COP26 and there's also an important G20 leaders summit coming up this weekend. China has committed to um, becoming carbon neutral by 2060 and to peak its emissions before 2030. And it just yesterday, I think, released a plan for how to get there, so to speak. Would you mind saying a few words about this plan and about generally about kind of China's role in the, the climate talks and uh, how we can expect it going, going forward? Clearly, there's a lot of scrutiny on China at these talks, as there always will be and should be, I suppose, when it comes to you know, UN climate talks, because China's the world's largest carbon emitter by volume. And you know you can't really have these talks without them in the room and, and, and without an ambitious offer from China. And China hasn't yet submitted its revised NDC. So there's a lot of sort of speculation over what that might contain, which is, I guess, why there's been a lot of attention on this particular document. This document, I think, sets out what we can expect to see in the revised NDC, which is to say it's quite in line with what we already know and have seen from those big statements that Xi Jinping has made to the UN General Assembly over the last couple of years. So the commitment on the 2060 carbon neutrality, the 2030 peaking, 
And, and of course, the um, statements about stopping coal-fired power overseas, Chinese coal-fired power building overseas, and uh, financing green energy. The only new element I've really picked up that I think is, is significant is there's now more specificity on what the energy mix is going to look like to 2060. Um, including ramping down of, of fossil fuels very rapidly after 2030 to reach 80% non-fossil sources by 2060. So, of course, that then brings in where the nature element will always come, which is then if you're going to reach carbon neutrality, that means those remaining fossil sources will need to be balanced, of course, with negative emissions technologies, which could include, for example, forestation. So, you know, we have to think about uh, what that's that's going to look like over the years and what role nature-based solutions some will play. And I imagine there'll be sort of work on that. I don't see that there'll be a lot more before Glasgow coming from China, given that they've already really set out their stall at the UN. I think from the Chinese perspective, they've kind of put forward what they're going to put forward. And they regard that as relatively ambitious. You know, there is a sort of a tendency in Chinese policymaking to under-promise and over-deliver. I think there's a, a consensus that that is what the 2030 target represents in terms of peaking. China could definitely come in a few years early. They likely will. I don't think that necessarily means they will move up their target at this moment because they've really you know, committed very publicly to the, to the 2030 target. I'm not sure why they would see any, any particular pressure on them to change that right now. But, you know, more broadly, I guess, yeah, we're going, you know, into this in a moment when, of course, the US is rejoining for the first time since Trump. And, you know, there's a lot of question marks about, you know, what the US position really means when they're not able to pass sort of legislation uh, in Congress. And, you know, the global tensions, particularly the potential for kind of US-China tension at the talks, I think is quite high. And I think the sort of expectations that there could be that that type of great power confrontation and that it could undermine some of the more cooperative dynamics, I think is quite uh, is quite high. I think there's a lot of expectation in that regard. So from my perspective, if we can, you know, achieve a talks that can restore trust for the most vulnerable countries that really need, you know, solidarity very urgently. And if we can more broadly, just uh, restore trust in the in the process after you know a very difficult few years. Not only because of the delays and cancellation and postponements because of COVID, but also because of the economic effects of COVID in the developing world and other places, and you know the the years of of US absence and so on. You know, if we can really sort of restore trust in that process and in multilateralism, that you know alone, I think would be really important. We are trying to ramp up ambition. You know, ahead of this uh, global stock take, you know, uh, five six years on from Paris, and I think that's that's incredibly important, and I think there'll be a lot of uh, really important discussion around it. But I do actually think that keeping things on track is incredibly important. Sam Jill, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. Thank you so much for speaking to us. everyone for listening. Please do stay tuned over the next few weeks as Ben and I will be producing several episodes from COP26 in Glasgow where we'll be talking to negotiators, experts and the general public too about how the negotiations are proceeding. Thanks so much. Bye.